Hello and welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Bouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. As you probably know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. The following recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. This recording was made at the i3 Asset Allocation Forum held on 24 and 25 August 2017 in Terrigal, New South Wales. Jim McCoffin, Chief Executive Officer of Principal Global Investors, spoke about technology and disruption. Asset Allocation what this conference is about. Asset allocation, when most people talk about it, either tactically or strategically, depends on mean reversion. People say things like bonds are expensive or equities are cheap. Cheap compared with what? Well, where they usually are. There isn't really in many of these financial distributions, though, a mean to revert to. And before getting into the technology points, I would simply point out the 10-year yield on the world's reserve currency, which in the 19th century was the pound and most of the 20th century was the dollar, but that's really the world's cost of capital. Typically, that was somewhere between 25 and 4% for 150 years up till 1970. So just think of that. It was fluctuating in a pretty narrow range and, you know, two and a half, three, four was kind of normal. Then we had this incredibly anomalous period, which we all, or at least the older among us, got into this industry in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, when inflation took off, nominal GDP grew very rapidly, the U.S. 10-year yield went up to about 14 or 15% in the early 80s, enormous spike, back down again. And that back down again is the 30-year bull market in bonds that many managers, many asset owners rode. Um, Why did that happen? It happened because of the baby boomers being in their 20s, in their 30s, in the period of maximum consumption, setting up home, buying lots of appliances and clothes and cars and all sorts of purchases, demographic purchasing power at a time when the world's capacity to produce those goods was seriously impaired by the hangover of the Second World War and the very clear reality of the Cold War. So you had excess demand at a time of constrained supply. That leads to inflation, pricing power, high degree of nominal GDP growth. That was inevitably associated with a very strange period of high interest rates. We're back to something more normal. Indeed, I would argue that we have an almost inevitable deflationary impact in the economy coming from both technology and aging demographics. The work I've done on this was really motivated by questions. Why is productivity growth obvious everywhere except in the productivity statistics? Why is there no inflation? Why is the Phillips curve not working anymore? You know, on any analysis of the, 
of the economic fundamentals, the US is pretty close to full employment. Typically, that means you're in inflation. Hasn't happened. Why? You saw in an earlier session the dot plots of the, there was the US 10-year yield, and, or the US Fed funds rate, actually, and the dot plot, which is the economic views of where it was going. Everyone went above where the actual curve went. So, in other words, for several years, every, every informed economic commentator has been forecasting rising rates that so far hasn't happened at the rate they expected. Uh, maybe a controversial one in this country, why the persistent weakness in commodities? Why is there a global excess of savings over capital investment? It's enormous, it's unprecedented, and I would advocate it's structural. This is very important for asset allocation because excess savings over capital investment in the world economy means lots of money chasing opportunities, which means low rates, low returns, low rates. So my contention is that there's deflation in the system and it's not well reported and it's caused by demographics and technology. As an aside, though, I'd point out GDP and inflation are both very odd economic statistics. They're always interpreted in a way that doesn't really match how they're constructed. GDP is always thought of as a measure of prosperity. Well, if you have something like a tsunami, an earthquake, even a bushfire that destroys lots of stuff, lots of property, the rebuild boosts GDP. You never saw the loss of value, but it looks as if it's a stimulation to the economy. That's an example of GDP being a very odd measure. So is inflation. There's a couple of things that I would mention that mean inflation numbers may overstate what the inflation really is. Uh, one would be something in the U.S. called owner's equivalent rental. Believe it or not, built into the inflation numbers, the CPI in the U.S., is the rent you would have paid if you didn't own your property. In other words, that's in there as your occupancy cost. It's not money you spend because you own your property. So, and that has been the main source of inflation in service prices in the U.S. You have other effects like uh, the outlet effect, the outlet substitution effect, quite well known to economists who cover inflation. What that is, is I'll give you an illustration. Suppose you used to buy books at a specialist bookstore, but you changed to buying them from Amazon 30% cheaper. The inflation numbers go blithely on looking at prices from the specialist bookstore, even though that's not where you buy it anymore. So in other words, inflation GDP are very flawed measures, so we shouldn't be too surprised to see some issues here. Now, technology has always been changing um, inflation, driving it down. Uh, there's a monumental book which I've just been reading um, the Rise and Fall of American Growth by Robert Gordon. It's a book that, when I talk about this subject, quite, uh, informed people tend to point me towards. And it talks about things like I've just been talking about on GDP and on, uh, and on inflation as a way of linking real growth to nominal growth in, in the economy. It's about 1,400 pages. He doesn't always agree with what I've said, I think that the flaw in Gordon's argument is he underestimates the extent to which technological implementation has accelerated. I think that's really a key point in understanding 
the economy as we see it now. Um, so I would argue that automation, Wi-Fi, social media, mobile, uh, AI, these forms of disruption have accelerated, and that's what's causing a lot of the things we find quite hard to understand, the questions I started off with. I'll give you some examples. Autonomous vehicles. The reason that's going to happen is actually quite simple. It's that a million people a year in the world lose their lives in traffic accidents, 40,000 a year in the U.S. alone. We are a very risk-averse society. That is not going to be tolerated for long. Uh, my belief is that wanting to drive your own car on the public roads in 20 years' time will be about as socially unacceptable as smoking in public is now. It will be regarded as a dangerous, self-indulgent activity. Um, I think that safety and aver aversion to risk will drive it more than anything else. There'll be the nice impact, though, that it's a whole lot cheaper than, uh, than driving your own car because driving your own car, it means you're using it maybe 3 or 4% of the time. The other 96 or 97% of the time, it's parked. Whereas if a car becomes something you summon up on your mobile phone, we won't need anything like so many of them. Capital will be more efficiently used in the economy. That's how you get to it being so much cheaper to have autonomous vehicles rather than to drive them yourself or be driven in them. So the economics will drive it that way too. I suspect the place it comes first is trucks because if you think about it, trucks going across Australia, across America, they have to stop when the driver's tired, have to work their hours. If they're driven autonomously and mechanically, they just keep going. You probably need about a third to a half as many trucks as you have now. That means the capital stock is much more efficiently used and you need less of it. So I do think that there are a lot of things that are going to happen that are really going to be both deflationary and increase the impact of technology in the economy looking forward, even over and above what I've described. Four million people make their living driving in the United States alone. Most of those jobs are vulnerable on a 10, 15, 20-year view. Um, give you another example. Um, Airbnb. The last time I looked, which was about a year ago, they were renting out about a million rooms a night uh, worldwide. Hilton Corporation was about 700,000, so about 70% of the size. How was Hilton built up? Tens of billions of capital over a 100-year period went into the building up of Hilton Corporation. Literally tens of billions. Um, what went into Airbnb? A few geeks writing, writing some code, the end impact of which is people spare rooms, empty homes, become rental properties, become hotels in effect. So in other words, bringing a lot of capital in the economy back into use. These are examples of how technology in future will accelerate that more intensive use of capital. But I would contend that similar things have been happening within companies, within other economic activities, which mean that the capital stock in the world is working much harder than it used to. I'd also point out, and this is important for a lot of assessment, for example, I had a conversation at lunch about the Schiller 
CAPE ratio, the capital adjusted price earnings ratio. Um, that must be complete nonsense, and I'll tell you why. The big companies now are all tech companies. 15, 20 years ago, the capital stock of a business was real estate and equipment. Now it's intellectual property and code. Very, very different capital structure. Note that a lot of the latter is actually expensed in the economy rather than regarded as capital investment. There's a very blurry line, which all of you running businesses will be aware of, between what's capital investment and what's spending. But I would argue here that uh, some measures, such as the CAPE, are actually very, very untrustworthy, given the change in economic structure. Um, infrastructure. If you have driverless cars, you can have uh, a whole lot of uh, more throughput on a given road. It'll change the nature of cities. You won't need parking lots anymore. You won't have on-street parking, because a car will be something you call up on your mobile phone. They keep moving. Um, if that all happens, as I suspect it will, then you get, again, much more intense use of the existing infrastructure. And uh, there's, a, the, the, there's some commentary on that in the two articles I mentioned. But, you know, if you get that, then some of the infrastructure we're building now will be redundant quite quickly, whereas other types of infrastructure will really be needed. Think of power generation. The growth in wind and solar and the growth in smaller um, scale power generation even through natural gas. No longer are we in that high power distribution system. We're going to be much more networked almost inevitably and I think that will make a change to how infrastructure gets used. Um, technology has driven prices down in the economy a lot. Um, an example close to home, you know, when I went off to university, if you wanted to have your music with you, you had boxes and boxes of vinyl albums, lots of very expensive, um, sensitive equipment, um, separate turntable, tape deck, amplifier, speakers. Nowadays, when uh, the equivalent um, young people go off to college, uh, they just take a Bluetooth speaker with their phone, they can listen to anything they want, anytime they want. That's an enormous reduction in cost as well as improvement in functionality. If you think of your mobile phone, it's everything from a flashlight to a MacBook. Lots of things you used to buy, which the mobile phone will do. This is all very deflationary because a lot of things you don't need to buy anymore and you can change the pattern of usage. Um, so my idea here is that inflation is overestimated in the economic statistics because of this underlying poorly, and poorly recorded uh, deflation. Um, and when I've talked about this with economists who are academically much stronger than I am, the usual answer I've had more than, more than once is that's why we look so much now at the nominal. In other words, nominal GDP growth is a known number. You can measure it. What you can't do really easily is decompose it between real GDP and inflation because the nominal equals the sum of real GDP growth and inflation. If the inflation measure is wrong, if inflation is really lower than perhaps we're recording, then real growth is higher and some pretty bad policy moves are being made. So I would argue that... Uh, that that is really 
at the center of a lot of these arguments. This is why we're not seeing inflation the way the Phillips curve would lead you to expect. It's why we've got an excess of savings over capital investment in the world economy. Get used to it. That tends to mean interest rates will be lower for longer than perhaps most people think. As an aside, this has big political impact. Why did we see last year the Trump presidency and Brexit? Why did we see the National Front get very, very close to the French presidency, at least apparently so, before they backed off, looking perhaps at what happened in the US and in the UK? Um, The answer to that is, if you look at the income distribution in the world, there's only one group for whom real income hasn't grown in the last 20 years. And that's basically the working class and middle class in the the advanced industrial countries. There are people in the US, in the UK, in France, even in Germany, who used to have unionized jobs that were quite highly paid. Those jobs have gone because machines do that work. Note that the populist politicians from Le Pen to Trump to Nigel Farage will blame the foreigner. They always say, foreign countries are stealing our jobs, immigrants are taking the jobs and pushing wages down. Neither of those is true except at the margin. The real reason those jobs have gone is automation. It's machines that are doing it now. And that's why a lot of the populism is fundamentally dangerous and, uh, and very potentially destructive. The only real answer to this for people is get yourself reskilled, do something else. Because the old jobs in manufacturing, in um, metal production, are just not going to be there anymore, and probably just as well, because jobs like coal mining or working in a steelworks were pretty bad for your health. Better that machines do it in terms of human well-being, but it's still an economic issue to cope with. So if rates are lower for longer, I'm not saying rates won't go up. I mean, they are going up at the moment. That's the cycle. But maybe we'll be in a period over the next decade when a high interest rate is a 4% bond yield, not an 8 or 10% bond yield. Come the next recession, I suspect that the U.S. 10-year yield goes down to 1% just because of these underlying impacts in the economy. So get ready for that lower for longer environment. In equities, and it's been mentioned already in this conference, in equities we've seen a Enormous move in valuation from value equities to growth. Note that that's exactly what should happen if long-term rates are moving down. Maybe the consensus is catching up with the sort of thing I've been saying. Because in my environment I've just posited, then earnings 10, 20 years out are worth quite a lot. Whereas in the 80s and 90s they were worth not very much at all at the sort of rates that were then prevalent. So the value to growth rebalancing, re-rating that's happened makes every sense in this environment. Don't expect it to reverse fast. Technology on commodities. Why is the oil price so low? Or why has it gone down so much? Um, Because the U.S. has become the swing producer, not Saudi Arabia. Why did that happen? Technology. They're just so efficient at getting the stuff out of the ground. The price of... U.S. onshore oil production in the last five years has gone from roughly $90 a barrel to roughly 40 or maybe even a bit less. That means that the swing producer can actually keep the price at a much lower level than was thought by anyone 
five or 10 years ago when they talked about peak oil. Peak oil is not going to be peak production, it's going to be peak demand. And there will be oil in the ground when no one wants it. That's actually how commodity markets tend to in the end up. My favorite quote in the oil market was from Sheikh Yamani, the Saudi oil minister in the 70s, who once said, the Stone Age did not end because we ran out of stone. The same will be true of the oil market. And uh, so technology is actually a very important factor in how you think about many sorts of investment. Um, in real estate, you want to be in global cities where that intellectual property is generated, where people debate, where young people get their entertainment, and therefore where they, 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 where they uh, develop the new ideas. You know, Google recently took a lot of office space for a few thousand people in New York. Twenty years ago, it would have been an office park in Stamford, Connecticut, or the middle of New Jersey. Now, lower Manhattan. That's where the younger people want to live. That's where they get the stimulus, the culture, all the things they want to do. And that move to bigger focus on the cities has made quite a big difference to real estate investment. We're very conscious of that, given our real estate activities. And that will continue. So just to finish, this is really the tragedy for all of us in retirement investing. We depend on going through an accumulation phase to a decumulation phase when the assets provide an income. The tragedy of that is so many people wanting to turn assets into income inevitably pushes yields down and makes it hard. It will take all our resourcefulness to find ways to have our retirees live well without an inordinate amount of assets. And certainly what we have been doing for years is trying to find ways to get premium yield um, better than a treasury bond on all sorts of different assets from real estate to high yield bonds. Those are the sorts of things people will need to do to try and create diversified sources of income because it just doesn't work to be periodically selling, uh, making capital sales. Um, so with that... I'm showing red now, I'm over time. Um, I just want to say one thing, which is why does this persist? I think it's because of silo thinking. There are people who know a lot about economics. There are people who know a lot about technology. The overlap is very small. And I think basically we need to talk to each other more across discipline to understand these issues. Thank you for listening to the i3 Insights podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. Thank you.